Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be in here and dry this afternoon. I don't know whether it'll stay dry outside or not. For the 20 years we've been here, I think this is the most rain we've ever had all in a row. And we closed the street going to the south of us. Oh, boy, there's a voice clear out. And uh, I heard also that the highway or the pavement up at Fort Coral Pink Sands has also washed completely out. So you can't even go north and get out of here at this time uh, unless they've made a way to get across it now. I don't know that. But uh, Las Vegas had water up into the cars in places and it was coming into some of the casinos. So uh, we've gone from a terrible drought to a terrible two-week period here, I guess, and then it'll be over and the drought will probably come back. It makes you wonder how much geoengineering is behind these things and how they're doing it, but nonetheless, we've been kind of digging out around here because of damage water has done and potentially can yet do. I was loading the tractor up to take it up to help with a house project and when I saw that the mud even in the equipment shed the tires of the trailer were sinking in about six inches it just spurred a thought in me that that tractor needs to be here instead of there <laughs> so uh, I decided not to take it just leave it here because it looks like rain for another ten days at least and uh, we may need it for help in controlling things so Tractors here, and we'll stay here. Uh, well, we came down to chapter 3 in Ephesians last time. It kind of struck me after the Bible study Thursday night that the theme of Ephesians written to the church at Ephesus there in the second chapter of Revelation and Paul himself writing to them here what he's trying to do is impress upon them the greatness of God and how much he cares for us little ones down here. And Revelation 4 is kind of along the same theme. It was to show the majesty, the power, the greatness of God. And maybe that's the direction God has been taking these things the last few weeks because we're entering a time of trouble such as has never been on the earth and things are getting worse as we know day by day and we need to understand the greatness and power of God and we also need to understand how small and how ineffective we are but that he can deliver he can take care of us. And the world does not have that hope. They don't have that understanding. They don't have a clue, really. Some of them hang on a little false hope of a rapture, which isn't even a biblical doctrine. And they think that's going to be their answer. But it's not. The Bible is very clear on that. And the world is going to go through the greatest trouble it ever has. I think I mentioned somewhere along the line the last week or two that there is a scripture in the prophets. I didn't look it up. 
uh, but it does say that this end time deliverance will be greater than at the Red Sea. And if you think about that a little bit, Moses didn't do a lot, did he? He got sent as a messenger to Pharaoh to tell him, hey, uh, and then God sent the plagues. And Pharaoh and Aaron went back and forth for a while, but all they were was emissaries, ambassadors, to tell Pharaoh what God was going to do. And then when it came time to deliver them, God killed the firstborn. God made the Egyptians turn them loose. He led them to the Red Sea. There they were utterly helpless. They could do nothing. The Egyptians coming behind them with chariots and the Red Sea in front of them. They were lost. They were hopeless. And then God caused Moses. Again, Moses didn't do it. He just lifted the staff. And God caused the water to part. Well, that was incredible deliverance. And not only did he deliver them from their enemies, David was just talking about that in that last hymn we sung, Consider my enemies because they many are, and we're going to have, we're going to have as enemies basically everyone in the world, and Satan. So God gave them those great deliverances, and then they got on the Red Sea, other side of the Red Sea, and then they began to gripe and complain and murmur because lunch was a little late. Uh, <laughs> in their opinion. But God had in mind to take care of them, and he fed them for 40 years. And then the miracle, it, it uh, what am I trying to say? The, the river, Jordan, uh, where it backed up during flood stage back clear up and let them walk across without getting their feet wet. And then Jericho's walls just fell down. They didn't do much, did they? Just marched, and then they all yelled. And then God did the rest. So here we are, and the world is coming down on us in a way that it never has before. I don't know how much of a threat people put on Noah while he worked. I've not thought of it as them threatening to kill him or anything necessarily that they may have. But I'm sure there were taunts and hoots and derisive laughter and that idiot, that fool out there building an ark where there's no water. <laughs> it had to have appeared very, very stupid. And I'm sure that's the way it was looked at. But what, an, what a massive deliverance that was of just eight people. Uh, with Israel, it was a great number of people, probably we figured upwards of three and a half million or so. Here, it will be a small group of people again, but this time with the whole world arrayed against it. And if he does what I think he's going to do, he's going to restore the Garden of Eden. That's what Isaiah 55 seems to indicate. To where within the original promised land, everything is going to be Edenic and millennial. And what has he told the church to do here at the end? Go to your chamber, 
be a light on a hill, and then I'm going to send two out to preach. Pretty much what he did in the past. Not much different, but he is the one that does the plagues. He is the one that sends all those things in the book of Revelation that destroy mankind. And he's letting Satan do most of the dirty work like he did with Job and others until he's bound and that stops. But the deliverance that's coming is going to be greater than Noah. It's going to be greater than Mitzrayim and slavery. Greater than the Jordan River. And the only thing in the scripture that in one sense or in a great sense, really, is greater than the things that I just mentioned, was the life, death, and resurrection of Christ himself. Because that is a deliverance that affects the Old Testament people and us and those who live in the millennium and on, uh, delivering them from sin and death. And that's the greatest deliverance of all. But the deliverance of his remnant here at the end is also going to be probably secondary only to the deliverance that he brought with what he did here on the earth. Uh, this is going to be worldwide. It is going to be world-ending. And it is going to be the worst conditions that have ever existed. The world was violent, the world was sinful before Noah, but it wasn't like it is today. Uh, he says things would be worse. And it wasn't as bad in Mitzrayim. Yeah, they were making bricks and they were slaves, but they still had houses and land and animals and a somewhat normal life. They just had Instead of going to work for the man, they went to the work for the Pharaoh. But conditions on this earth are going to get worse than they've ever been. So I think God has been directing these messages to scriptures that help us grasp his greatness and yet his care. And how important we are to him. And we need to grasp that because... We're self-important. Uh, we feel like we want to be taken care of, and we're important in that sense. But we need to grasp that we can't save ourselves. When they start coming for all Israelites, which they're beginning to do, someone just opened up some documents that the government had that explained that they are prejudiced against white people and they're trying to get rid of white people. Government wrote that. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. You're a white people, so they want you gone. And that's our own government. So you can't save yourself. Only God can. So... We are going through scriptures right now, and I didn't do it by design or because I thought it was such a great need. It just struck me as a, that I believe God led me to this. This is what we need, if you will. 
And I do believe he guides and directs us. I do believe that. And if I didn't believe that, uh, where would we wind up? If you didn't believe God could guide and direct and help us and lead us where he needs us to be, we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> Let's go back a little bit into chapter 2, the last three verses. This is a couple of parting thoughts here as we go into chapter 3. He's been talking about how we're part of the family of God already in his mind. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. So, we are part of a building that God is building. He doesn't do anything halfway. Uh, when he restored the earth in Genesis 1, he did a marvelous job. And when he was done... He looked and said, it's very good. He doesn't work haphazardly. He doesn't say, oops, uh-oh, sorry about that. Uh, he fixes it according to his plan, and he sees it through. So he's decided to call us, as we've read in the first two chapters, to be part of this building that he is making. Now, this is going to be an incredible building, because it's made by God himself. When I walked through the uh, house of the great God there in Pasadena, it was really a marvelous structure, and I think most of us at one time or another saw it. Beautiful building. But it was the works of architects and builders and a man's dream, if you will and did a magnificent job, but it's not going to be anything at all compared to what God is building in us. Well, there's just no comparison. You know, there is a scripture that says he doesn't live in buildings made by hands. And yet he did say of Solomon's temple and of, I think, another place or two, and the, even the, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, that his presence was there. So he did come, and his presence was there, but it was not his full-time abode, if you will. It didn't live there. But he lit it up, <laughs> and his presence was there. So he is not going to live in, and he didn't live in the house of the great God. I didn't see him there. I didn't see his glory there. I saw some of the inspiration he had given that caused that to be built. I have no doubt of that. But here he's putting together Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and using the apostles and prophets to help in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the eternal in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So you and I are not a temple made by hands. We're human beings made by God's hand, and he does not dwell in the vast majority of the people of the earth. They're not part of the temple of God. 
We are as the first fruits. And when you read about the 144,000 being the city of God and the temple in which the Father and the Son will dwell with us, then we are part of that. I mean, the math in, that, in Revelation 21 fits the 144,000 perfectly. And we are that city of God that he dwells within. So this to God is the most important thing going in the universe by far. And the Ephesians had kind of lost sight of that, lost their first love and zeal and excitement about it. So Paul had to address them, and then John had to address them again about 20, 30 years later because the problem had not been solved. So let's get it. <laughs> let's just get it of how important this project is that God is doing in us and maybe we'll stand a little more in awe and respond a little quicker, a little stronger, uh, that our hand will do with our might whatever we find to do. And building the temple is the most important thing to do. Here again, he does most of the work. He works his salvation in us. We don't work it in ourselves. We just help along the way somewhat by working at overcoming and growing and controlling things. Uh, he expects that of us. But believe me, he's doing most of the work, just like he has, as I just reviewed, all the way through. It was him doing it. And everybody else kind of following along and hopefully going along with the program. But that's been a problem all the way back. He had done all of it for Adam and Eve. They just decided not to go along with the program. And that's what happened in the wilderness. So they all died out there and their kids went in. And in the New Testament, same old problem. People began to take it for granted and began to fall away. And he warns us about that in Matthew 24. He who endures to the end doesn't give up, doesn't quit, doesn't lose hope, doesn't lose faith, but goes through it all. And we're just starting into it big time. It's, it's here now. That keeps being impressed upon me because since I was eight years old, I've been expecting it. And it wouldn't come and wouldn't come and wouldn't come. So I've been waiting for it for 70 years. That isn't very long compared to history, but pretty long time to me. And now, I look around, and here it is. That which I had been wondering about, thinking about, now it's here. And it's getting worse every day that goes by. The U.S. just stopped, or grounded, their whole fleet of F-35 fighter planes. 300 of them making them stay on the ground because there's a canister there that ejects pilots that is malfunctioning. And if I were to sit here and bet money today, I would bet that those canisters are made in China. <laughs> you know, 
our military won't be able to operate with Chinese parts. Just Satan and man are, boy, are they doing the work. And it's going to get to where it's scary. And that's why he tells us over and over, don't fear, be of good courage, be strong, and work. We're going to have work to do, and we need to be strong to do it, and not fear what man can do. We're told that all the way through the Bible. Trust God. Have faith in God. And not many will. Will I find it on earth? I hope he does in us and those who come. I really hope he does. I think he will. Well, he's putting us together through his spirit living in us. And it's that spirit that helps us overcome and grow and live up to the aspirations, the goals that he has for us. So then chapter 3, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Now he is in, and we are, in the position of a slave, of a servant, because Christ did buy us with a price. The price being his life, his blood. So, Paul was a slave, and so are we. So, slavery's not so bad. It just depends on who's in charge of the slaves. We have a slave master who is kind and gentle and loving, because government from the top down is the best form of government there is. There's only one place in the universe that everything is perfectly in order. And that's the throne of God. He allows a little disorder there, which he doesn't have to, but he does. And the only form of disorder is Satan going up there to accuse you and me. And then there's coming a time very shortly when he's going to send him packing and say, don't come back. And then it will be peace on earth, I mean peace in the he tells us to pray the conditions and peace be here as they are there. And that will come when the millennium is here and the Satan is bound and God is the ruler of the universe. You know, men do see, a lot of them, the government from the top down is the best way. It's what you believe in, believe it or not. I'm not saying we ought to be communists or fascists or live under a human dictator as a nation. But you believe in government from the top down because you believe you're the top. That's why in our human nature we do not want anyone to tell us what to do because we're self-government or self-governing and we believe in government from my top down. That's pride, vanity, ego is what it is. But that's what you believe in. And that's what you fight for. And that's why you get upset if someone tries to tell you what to do. Because you got, you're full of pride, vanity, ego, and self. We all are. It's something we have to fight. So the problem with you being self-governing is that you don't do a very good job of it. That's the problem. 
problem with people living under a dictatorship on this earth is that there's not a good dictator anywhere. They're all corrupt. They're all selfish. They all put themselves ahead of everybody else and they become billionaires and the rest of us get poorer and poorer. That's the way it works. So government from the top down is God's way. But it has to be ruled by God. And Mr. Armstrong taught that government in the church should be from the top down. The God-appointed leaders that he always has to guide and to, if you will, rule the church. It says in Hebrews that we are to obey those that have the rule over us. And some people who want democracy in the church have terrible trouble with that verse. And they try to translate it different ways and mess with it. But we'll see right here before we get through this book that God set government in the church from the apostles and prophets and so on on down. That's his way. Now, fortunately for us, he appointed Noah, and he appointed Moses, and Abraham, and James, Peter, John, and Paul, and men who were converted to do that. And Herbert Armstrong, who was converted to be the leader of the first 70 years of the end time, 100 years. And he did, overall, a pretty good job of it. Uh, he made his mistakes. He had his own individual, personal problems, yes. But I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He's the only one proclaiming the truth in this end time for 1,900 years. And he didn't have all the truths, but he had an awful lot of them. He didn't understand prophecy clearly because he wasn't going to be part of it and didn't know it. Most of my life, I thought he would be around and probably be one of the two witnesses, and his son Ted, who was filthy in a lot of ways, would probably be Joshua. And maybe they were a minor type, but it didn't work out that way. They're gone. But Abraham Strong did an awful lot of good, and we're here as a result of God calling us through him. We've learned some since then, but... God appointed him to be the head of the church. And you know when worldwide started getting in trouble? It was when some of the ministers started thinking, we can do it better than HWA, and we need a doctrinal committee to settle doctrine instead of HWA deciding. And then we started getting into confusion and mixed up doctrine. And some of those people on that doctrinal committee started trying to send the ministries to a ministerial seminar. And I was in station in L.A. then, or L.A. Basin, and they wanted me to go to the Fuller's Seminary, a theological seminary. And I said, not a chance. <laughs> I'm not going to go to a seminary, if you want to say it, the way it was started. The Catholic Church has a lot of sexual stuff in their doctrine and practice. And that's where that word seminary came from. So I asked for a transfer out of there. 
I'm out of here. One way or another, I'm not going to go and be indoctrinated by a bunch of Protestants. So when we got away from the government from the top down, we started having troubles, and it got worse and worse until it finally came apart. Now, we can't allow that to happen again. Out here, some didn't like me being in charge, and that's really the bottom line on it, and some of them are still trying to get rid of me. One comment was made, well, we almost had him, and then Gloria showed up. So, for them to make a statement like that shows what their goal and purpose is. They want to control this whole place, they consider it a failure, and they want me gone. Because they can do a better job. They think. It's not going to work out that way. But they can't get along among themselves either. You know, those of us who stood firm are still meeting together in peace and safety and cooperation. And they're all divided. They can't get along with each other. I hear things here and there. Because liars and thieves aren't going to get along. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen. But when people start trying to run things themselves, it always leads to trouble. And that was exactly what started all the trouble of the universe with Satan thinking, I don't know how long he pondered it, <laughs> but he began to think, you know, I'm just as good as he is. I can do just as good a job as God. And besides that, look at all those angels and beasts and everybody worshiping him. And I'm pretty good looking myself. And that grew and festered until the time that he had indoctrinated a third of the angels that they were just as nearly as good as he was and certainly better than the other angels, and maybe God himself. So, they decided to take over. They didn't want government from the top down unless they were the top. That never works. Now, it's going to work, and God does it in small amounts down here, because he always works through men one way or another, and he will with the two witnesses as well. And they will have control over and oversight of the church along at the same time. With Christ here in the midst of us. Because his work is going to be a mighty and wonderful and mysterious work that is greater than any work that has ever been done before. Now he's promised that. And you know what? I want to be part of it. Uh, that sounds exciting to me. I go back and read Isaiah, I get excited because there's so much in there that is exciting. But these people have gotten where they weren't excited anymore. We cannot allow ourselves to go there. So Paul said, I'm happy to be a slave. I have this, my master rules me and that's okay with me. I submit my ego, my vanity, my submission. Everything I am, heart, mind, body, and soul, I submit to him. That's where we're supposed to be. 
If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace, God which is given, grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words. That's how he started this book about the mystery of God and how that we are to become God. And he was a part of that, and that God had given it to him by revelation, because you know what? There's not one of those people who had come up with that knowledge and understanding. Not one of them. God had given it to Paul, or Christ had, by revelation. Put him out in the desert and taught him. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So he says, I am here as a slave to pass along to you what he gave to me. And you know, that's all I am as a messenger to you. God called Herbert Armstrong, and then the ministry was trained under him to do the job of serving and helping and encouraging and inspiring and teaching the church. And some followed that pretty faithfully, and some didn't at all. And that's where a lot of the problems came from. But you'll find several places in the New Testament where Paul or someone else would say, don't believe me, believe this word. Herbert Armstrong used that over and over and over again. Listen to him, I shouldn't say that. Don't listen to me, listen to this book. And that's what Paul is saying here. God gave this to me, so listen to it. And he'd written it down for them to read. And here it is, in 66 book form, for us to read. Now, then he shows the importance again. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God was not there acting in the past in the same way that it was once Acts 2 had occurred, and the Holy Spirit then became a part of the mind of the member. So it wasn't made known. Now it was made known to a, a degree to a few. You read the Psalms and you know that David understood quite a bit about the plan of God. Uh, Job in saying I'll be dead and then I'll be resurrected was saying he knew something about the plan of God. So God had revealed a certain amount to them but even to these end-time apostles, he had not revealed how long it would be. Two thousand years off, and all sat down and said, oh man. <laughs> Why are we even working at it? So, he did that on purpose for their good. And even then, there were people who were not getting the picture he revealed it. This is especially said. You're getting it when people of old and other ages didn't have it at all. And even now, out of 8 billion people, 
I'd say there are less than 150,000 on earth who know and understand the plan of God. I'm sure it's a lot less than that. Attendance at Worldwide at its greatest was about 150,000 at the feast, and that included a lot of unconverted people who were just there as kids or unconverted relatives or whatever. There weren't all that many. And you know what? In the last 30 years, there have been an awful lot of church people die, and there haven't been a lot of new ones coming in. Very few. So we are incredibly blessed and favored by God to have been given the truth. And to be among the few who would still be following it and trying to make it work. Because so many have given up and quit or gone different directions or they're back in the Baptist church. It just, it's just gone. Can we grasp what God's doing in us? We look at each other, we look at ourselves and yeah. What's, what's there to be important here? Well, we're not. We're just human beings with every fault and problem there is. And yet God has chosen us to cause us to grow and overcome and be part of the rulership of the universe forevermore. That is astonishing and astounding when you think about it. wasn't known in the past, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. As I said, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob understood a certain amount, Moses did, but none of them understood those Gentile dogs would be part of it. None of them had that that I can think of, but off the top of my head, I don't in the Old Testament, it was always separate from the Gentiles. And now, in the New Testament, he's invited the Gentiles in and said, they're just as good as you are. That's kind of an old racist thing out of the American South, but it fits. They really are as good as a physical blood Israelite. Don't lack a bit. In the Spirit, we're all one, and that's all that counts. So, it was just basically through Paul, and then nominally through Peter, James, and the others, that the Gentiles were accepted. And Peter didn't like it at first either, you know. He didn't want this to be, that he finally saw it. And of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Well, the church at Ephesus was in a Gentile area. So that's why he's making this extremely important point here. Verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. Paul did not just wake up and say, I've been wrong all my life, I think I better change. It didn't happen that way. It was the effective working of God's power 
by striking him down and striking him blind as he was walking along the road. It was God that did it. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Now, at this point in his life, he was an apostle. He had come to hold an important position in God's church. So, in that sense, as a teacher and leader, he was not necessarily the least of all saints. But he had started out that way, hadn't he? I doubt if any of any or many of the people who came into the church in those days were killing Christians, killing church members. And Paul was reveling in that. He thought Christians in Christ were the enemy. Kill them all. That was his goal. And when Stephen was killed in one of the most dramatic martyrdoms ever, and asked God to forgive them as he lost consciousness. What an incredible thing. And yet Paul said, yeah, down he goes. Let's get another one. So in that sense, he was the least of all saints, for sure. And God called him out of being a murdering, hating, misery-filled individual, thinking he was doing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a service. That's what he thought he was doing. So he says, He called that which was the least, and gave me this grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, this is an unsearchable rich richness that they had never considered or thought about that God would someday work through the Gentiles. So he's saying, your very presence with the Spirit of God in the Church of God is something that the guys in the Old Testament could not have searched out. They wouldn't have believed it one whit. And to make all men see what is the fellowship, and it should be better translated plan, what is the plan of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. They had a great plan and purpose of what they were going to do, and they kept it hid through the ages. Only gave a small glimpse to a few leaders and prophets of the Old Testament, and that was all. And they didn't even have the full picture. We see much clearer and with less darkness than even those patriarchs did this close to the end. Created all things through Christ to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. He's entrusted to us things that he did not trust Moses with, Noah with, David. 
Abraham. They didn't know what you know. He hadn't entrusted it to anybody until the New Testament church came along and he began to reveal it to the apostles who then were preaching it to people like these Ephesians. And then it died out to the point nobody really even knew where it was. And then it resurfaced in 1926 and 27 and thereafter. The plan, the knowledge, the mystery of God, that we are to become God. There is no Protestant church on earth that teaches that. If you think of one, I'd like to know about it. But I've looked at all of them in systematic theology, and they all have about the same beliefs, really. But none of them understand what we're here to be. They'll say, well, we'll be the bride of Christ. But they don't know what that means. That doesn't mean they don't know we'll be on the same level. Kind to get in kind. Just the church. How much of the church is left? Not much. And ultimately only about 10% who are truly faithful. And they're coming to do the end time work. So he's entrusted just a very, very few with true knowledge. And indeed, to take it a step further, he has entrusted you with a knowledge that very, very few in the church understand. He has entrusted you with what 99% or more of the faithful remnant who will come do not understand. They will not understand. They're sitting out there right now. They're born. They're getting old, most of them. And they don't have a clue where the promised land is. They don't have a clue where the true Jerusalem is. They don't know nothing except the basic doctrines. We need to keep the Sabbath and the peace, and we're to be God someday in the resurrection. They understand the basics that Herbert Armstrong taught us, and the mystery of God was revealed through him. Who wrote the book, Mystery of the Ages? Billy Graham didn't do it. I just read recently, he was a 33-degree mason. No wonder he got along with the presidents of the United States. Was their preacher on call. There was never a president of the U.S. that ever called Herbert Armstrong of the White House to get advice. This never happened. But he was the only one that knew the truth. They don't want the truth. They hate it. Realize how... What's, what's the word I'm searching for? How small this is, or how special it is, and how we have been blessed above all people on earth. It isn't to puff us up, to make us vain and egocentric and say, we're better than you are. It's to be humbled and become poor in spirit to realize that God has given us something he's not given anybody else, and that ought to be humbling instead of creating vainglory. To be so ever, ever thankful 
for what we have. How can we give a prayer to God? How can you and I pray to God without somewhere in that prayer opening up and saying, thank you for all you've done for me and for us? Thankfulness is one of the greatest attributes we can have. And when you're, think, when you're being thankful, you're not being negative and griping. If Israel had crossed the Red Sea and said, Oh God, thank you. And they did. With Miriam singing. And they all joined in. Thank you, God. Wow. Well, we just saw. When's lunch? Where's the water? You did that, but you can't even give us a drink. Who are you, anyway? Human beings are so capricious. Oh. Why did Paul have to write this stuff? Because he told you and I need it. <laughs> That's why he wrote it. They needed it and we need it. So he gave the church the manifest wisdom of God... Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, this was planned long, long ago, as he said, predestinated to be done. They had it all figured out. We're going to call some at the end. And then they looked down and saw who was here and said, I'm going to call that one. Nah, that one, those two, out of the billions of people here, and your name was one of them, because you were such a wonderful person. That's why. He just looked at you and said, man, got to have that one. No, he said, who are the weak in the base down there? Ah. There's one. I think we can clean that one up and make him look pretty good before we're done. And it'll astound the world that one like that could be in the end doing this. So they picked this out individually, one by one, and opened our minds. And then we got vain and proud about it and started looking down on other churches and saying, we're the only people of God. We might not have thought that openly and actively, but that was our overall attitude. And God hated that vanity and ego because we had suddenly become self-important. And I think Herbert Armstrong imbibed some of that in the pictures coming off the jet plane and all this kind of stuff. He and visiting with the leaders of some of the nations, and he got caught up in that. And it's sad. I don't think he lost his salvation over it, but I think it's part of what caused people to begin to shake their head a little bit and say, wait a minute. And then the ministry thought, you know, here he is running around in jet planes and I'm driving in a year old car. Poor me. I don't know what all went through their minds, but <laughs> I was being a little sarcastic there. You have a new car every year or two. And... Uh, the salaries weren't great compared to the evangelists, and we didn't have big houses with swimming pools that they built for us all over the country. 
But that isn't what it was about. It was about the people and teaching them about God. And when headquarters got impressed with big buildings and jet airplanes and stuff, then that began to suffer. And it led to our Laodiceanism and demise as a group, as a church. Now he's looked down and said, well, I need about 10% to get the job done here at the end. So I called a whole bunch of them, and they went the way I knew they would, and that's why I wrote the book of Revelation and the little section about Laodicea a long time ahead of time, because I knew what would happen, and it did. And now he knows about 10% are going to repent of Laodiceanism and get rid of their vanity and look in the mirror and say, I'm not much. I'm not anything. I'm nothing. Please give me humility, forgiveness, mercy, because I'm poor in spirit and humbled that someone like you can try to use someone like me. That's the attitude we have to have. And about 10% are going to get that attitude, and they're going to show up to do his work. They'll be able to be talked to. They'll be able to be, able to be corrected. They'll be able to swallow hard and say, you're in charge, I'm not. I'll do what you say. Those are, those are rare individuals indeed. They can put their own vanity, ego, and egotistical self aside and work together to do a work. Verse 12, He purposes in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Now He tells us in the book of Revelation to come boldly to the throne of grace, that He takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. Now, why would we shrink back? Well, we could shrink back because our own self-esteem is low, because we don't think we can do it, because we're scared, we're afraid. It is a formidable challenge to overcome our nature and our sinful self. And we shrink back from the task instead of attacking it and coming boldly for help. We just kind of live with our sins and shrink back from doing something about it. So he says, don't do that. Have boldness. Now, where does that boldness come? It comes from the faith of him who has put his faith and confidence in us and has told us he will work salvation in us. Now that should, knowing that, should give us boldness to come to him. And say, look, I'm having a problem here. Help me. I need you. I can't do this. I've tried and I've tried and I'm failing. Help me. And do it with boldness and confidence that he indeed will. Because faith is no, is no good unless it's put to use. It has to be a living faith. 
whereby we come before him and we trust him and believe in him to get the job done. Not come mealy-mouthed and wiggle up, oh, I'm so bad and I just can't do it and I, oh, poor me. You don't want to hear that. I remember sometimes working with my kids. Can I do this? Can I have that? Yeah, I'll just quit whining and say, Daddy, may I please have? Then they'd get it. But I never could stand that whiny, negative approach. I just know you're not going to do this for me, but I'm going to ask you and I'm going to whine. I didn't want that to work for them. If that had worked for them, all I would hear was whining. And I don't like mosquitoes. So, quit whining. If you expect anything from me, come boldly, ask me please, and I'll say yes or no. And since I'm in charge and I'm the boss and I'm the daddy, if I say yes, you'll get what you wanted. If I say no, then you'll say, okay, I'll try again another time. But I won't whine. God doesn't like whiners. There was a couple that made a, a living as comedians. We're the whiners. We have diverticulitis. That went over TV for a while years ago. I don't remember. I don't like whining. God does not like whining. Paul is telling us here and in Hebrews, don't come whining to God. Come thankful that you've been called. Come thankful that He cares. Come thankful He's your father and your brother. And He wants you to have everything good that there is. And the only thing that's limiting that is you. So get over it and come boldly and ask because He wants you to have all the good things. He wants you to overcome and grow. It's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I enjoy giving my kids the cookie if they asked pleasantly and said, please. And if afterward they would say, thank you, Daddy. Wow, this works. Work for them, work for me. Works for God. So, got to do what Paul says here. That's just, that's what we have to do. We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. All you need is God on your side, brethren. And He is on our side, and that's what Paul is trying to explain to these people. He really is on your side. He really does think highly of you. He really does want you Gentiles in his kingdom, whether you believe it or not. So quit whining around and come boldly and ask for the help you need because he wants to give it to you. Nothing much happens that's good with negativity. Negativity. Oh, I don't think we can do this. I think it's going to rain. There's some proverbs about that. Oh, there's a lion in the street. I can't go to work today. 
I can't go plow the field because ah, it's going to rain. Soldiers are going to come and kill all my cows and eat them. You know, we got a thousand excuses of why we don't do what we need to do. No, come with boldness and ask for help and get her done. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. All kinds of things happened to Paul. He got shipwrecked. He got put in prison. He got beat, stoned, all kinds of things. And he says, you might get discouraged because of all the stuff they're doing to me. Thinking, well, God must not be in this organization. Organization, Look what's happening to Paul. Oh, I just heard Peter's in jail. <coughs> what else? Stephen got stoned. I, man, maybe I better go back to being a Astaroth worshiper. They don't stone them. No, he said, these tribulations come to me, and it's your glory. How was it their glory? Well, hadn't Christ told us through much tribulation enter the kingdom? Hadn't he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he'll deliver them out of them all? Hadn't he said, you'll be persecuted and even martyred? And then, nearly all apostles were. All the things he said about them came true. So when the bad stuff starts happening, you're supposed to say, glory to God! Because the things he said would come to pass are coming to pass. So we take courage in our tribulations and in our trials and difficulties because they're part of the process of growing and overcoming and trusting God to take care of us. Now you can pray for health and maybe God will give you healing here and there and he has a lot of people. I saw a little girl about this long brought back from apparent death on this property. The kids came out of the house screaming. The babies turned blue. The baby's dead. Or words to that effect. Just screaming their heads off. I happen to be out here in the yard somewhere. So I got over there just as fast as I could run. And says, you got any oil around? Because I wasn't carrying any at the moment. I was working whatever I was doing. So they grabbed some olive oil. And I went to the baby. And it had already turned blue and white. And it was not breathing. And laid hands on it and anointed it. And God caused the baby to start breathing again. It was for all intents and purposes dead. Now it hadn't completely turned and, you know... But there was no breath there, and the skin had already turned color. Most people apparently don't remember that, because they think they ought to be running things. And they got a lawsuit right now trying to destroy me and you. Forgot it. Oh, maybe if you remind them, they remember it, but they probably explain it away now. Well, she, you know, she just wasn't really there. But if she wasn't, why'd the kids come screaming? And why would the baby turn color and wasn't breathing when I got there? Sometimes God does things for us 
But you know what? Eventually, he's not going to heal and you're going to die. He's already told you that. He told Peter, James, and John, and not John, but the rest of them. He told Peter, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. And then it happened. Now that should have given everybody encouragement. But what God said would happen, did. Wow! God must know ahead of time what's going to happen. And he wrote all these prophecies that we're watching right now, thousands of years ago, because he knew exactly what would be happening. So as we see it get worse, we ought to be saying, thank God, his plan is on schedule. Now please protect me as I try to obey you and serve you, and count me worthy even one not to be a part of your work. That's our posture. So don't faint at my tribulations, he says. They're to your glory. The things that are happening to me are things God said would happen. We're right on course. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I went into this. He struck me down. He taught me, who was the least of saints, to become an apostle. And now, because I'm an apostle, I get stoned and shipwrecked and beat and put in jail. Coward all glory. And it makes me bow before our Father and our brother, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you. You've got the whole heaven and the earth all the billions of angels and people, and yet he granted you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his power in the inner man. See why we're not supposed to come whining? We're supposed to have might and strength and great power through his spirit to move mountains. You know, you may even have, if we use that analogy, some problems, some weaknesses, some faults that are like hills or mountains that have to be climbed. Reminds me of another song. Lord, this time you gave me a mountain. You've given me other things to overcome and I could handle it and I did it. But this time you gave me a mountain. I don't know if I can do it. Lost his son. Didn't he say that in his spirit we could move mountains? Human beings have problems that they've had since they were young. You know, based on everything about our background, our DNA, our upjerking. Everything about us, you have certain strengths and you have certain weaknesses. Certain gifts and certain lack of gifts just by being a human being. And whatever weaknesses you had, you probably still had. 
It's a matter then of having the might and the power and the spirit of God to control and manage those weaknesses in the best way you can to overcome and grow so that they become less and less of a problem. That's what growing and overcoming is all about. Because everybody has weaknesses and faults. Everybody. Except Christ. And we are to come with boldness, strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. How did David approach Goliath? Why don't you guys go out and whip him? He said, Who is this gen uncircumcised Gentile who's threatening the very army of God? I'll take him on. God help me, I'll do it. Okay, here's the armor. Don't want that. Got my slingshot. Help me God, here we go. You know, Gideon kind of the same way. Let's get this down to 300. I don't need thousands. It's the might and the power of God that is going to accomplish this. Do you think the end time work is going to be done by men? It even says it right there in Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal. Do you think the two witnesses could go out and do the things that is going to be said in here going to be done as men? I know someone that's looked around and said, well, all these scriptures are in here. Nobody's doing them. So I guess I better go do it. How's he going to make out? If he tries it, he'll probably be killed. If he won't accomplish these things, because unless God is behind it, and God is doing it, it ain't going to happen. And you're not going to grow and overcome unless you go boldly before the throne of God and ask to be given the might and strength and power over your human nature. That's the way you grow. By his faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You trust in him. You believe in him. You know that with him you can do anything. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me, is a scripture. you got to believe it. And then you got to go do it, having that in mind. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Love God and love each other. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height. Nobody else has the knowledge to begin even to understand the width and the length, the depth and the height of what God is doing. And even we look through a glass somewhat darkly. But we see more than anybody else on earth. And it isn't because we're so smart. It's because God said, I need some weak and base people that I can strengthen and confound the world with them. 
and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. We have to come to have the depth of love for the Father and for Christ himself beyond even knowledge. We understand a certain amount through Scripture. We grasp by reading the overall plan, the purpose. But the love of God is something that surpasses even that. I don't mean that we're above Scripture. I don't mean we can think above Scripture at all. But he gives us enough knowledge so that our relationship can come up to what these scriptures show us needs to be. It surpasses that. The love of God is an emotional thing. It is an understanding thing. It is an acceptance through faith thing. See, the Bible can only give you so much knowledge, but it cannot, beyond a certain point, give you the kind of faith that you need. Now, we do learn faith from the Scriptures. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, no doubt about it. But somewhere along the line, that Word has to combine with your mind to lift you to the level of God that he desires of us, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of people read this book and never come to have the love of God. I guess that's a way of putting it. It is something that is transcendent through his spirit and his faith in us that raises us to that level of love. Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He's trying to get us to see that the power of God is there and it is so strong and so transcending that it is an incredible thing that he would work through us and we can become different than the people around us. You're different than your relatives and friends of the past. You don't think like they do anymore. You don't have much in common with them. You can get to a family reunion and pass a little history and oh, what we did back then and you're done. Because they're thinking this way and you're thinking that way. It transcends us. We have to use this word to leap to that kind of life. It comes from the belief that His Spirit imparts inside us that helps us come to the level of love He wants. Words alone cannot do it. They'll impart a lot. They'll give us understanding. But it's above knowledge. Where did He say that? Up here a little bit. Now, my, 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 my eye's not following on it, but we read it a little earlier. Knowledge can only take you so far, and then the Spirit has to give you the leap to the kind of relationship with you. That's what he's saying. Unto him 
the glory in the church, not in the world, in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, without end, This is what it's all about. It's His power in us, the His only servant, being able to transform us into God the Almighty. That is truth, my brother.